May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. That story I just read, the story of the beheading of John the Baptist, is, well, it's a yuck story, really, isn't it? It's horrible. There is no good news in that story. A story of powerful people behaving very badly. On its own, a number of commentators have asked why it's even included in Mark and certainly why we have it in the lectionary. It's not a nice story. It does have echoes of other stories, echoes of stories, for example, of Vashti and Esther, Vashti, the wife of the emperor, and Esther, uh, who was uh, asked by the emperor to dance naked to entertain his guests, and she refused and so was beheaded, and Esther replaced her as chief wife, and she risked all to try to save her people. Strong women who gave and risked their lives. But unlike that story, this story is a story that also echoes the story of Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the weak king, the weak ruler Ahab, and his conniving wife Jezebel. In this story we also have a weak ruler, not a king. Herod was a tetrarch. He ruled a quarter of his father's kingdom. And he ruled it at the whim of the emperor in Rome. So he had no right to offer half his kingdom. It wasn't his to offer. And he threw a birthday party. And at this birthday party, the woman would have been in one part of the house and the men would have been in the other. And to these men, these drunken men, he asked his stepdaughter to dance. This is not a nice little line dance or jazz ballet piece. We're talking about Vashti again. It is a yuck story. And the weak and foolish Herod promises what he cannot deliver and is used by his wife to do the very thing that he does not want to do and ends up killing John the baptizer, whose only crime was to remind Herod that when you're married to one woman and you go and visit your half-brother, you're not supposed to divorce your wife and leave taking your half-brother's wife with you which is what happened. But this is not just a one-off story, is it? This is a story that has been repeated down the ages until today. People driven by fear and greed, powerful people behaving badly. Even the best people, as we've been reminded in the news, the seemingly best people, as we've been reminded in the news over the last week. One of the commentators I read is, uh, well, one of the websites I use is Working Preacher in America, and uh, they currently have an Hispanic-American commenting on the Gospel readings, an immigrant to the USA, and he writes his commentaries as an immigrant. And so in this week's commentary, he told the story of Jose... Uh, who with his father had come from the south to try to come into America and at the border had been separated. He told the story of Jose, separated from his father, now with foster parents. At least he's with foster parents. The commentator writes, I am an immigrant citizen, foreign and citizen at the same time. 
I could not read this biblical story of John the Baptist without thinking of stories like the young boy Jose and the loss of his father. To have Jose separated from his father is like having one's head cut off. The story told in Mark 6 has no redemption. John the Baptist had his head cut off. That is how hundreds of families are now living, with their heads cut off. Parents without children, children without parents. This is a story with no redemption. There seems to be no good news in the story. It reminds me of stories that belong here, the story of St. George, who was tortured and executed for speaking the truth to the emperor. All those who fought here, Pukehinehina and Taranga, in the face of settler greed, all those whose last land was given by, to the government by CMS, leaving Nai Tamarawaho and Nati Tapu living in abject poverty. The story of people, powerful people operating in fear and greed, continues until today. It also reminded me of when I was in Australia. When I was in Australia, I attended the Third Order Conference in uh, Brisbane for the Asia Pacific Province. And um, the conference was organised around open space technology. So open space technology says when you go to a meeting or a conference, the very best conversations and the most productive conversations happen over coffee. So how can we structure our meeting or conference in a way that we have the most productive conversations and outcomes? And uh, it's actually a very open space. So at the beginning of each day, people stand up. Uh, There are lots of spaces where conversations can happen. The timetable is set out. Uh, Our timetable is set out. The conversations would last for about 50 minutes. Uh, And uh, people would stand up and say, today I want to talk about... Uh, how is this Franciscan moment? I'm going to be in this room at this time. So at any one time you could have up to 10 conversations happening and those conversations would happen uh, for about 50 minutes. And uh, you could either go to one conversation or you could kind of be a bumblebee and kind of go to two or three of them or you could be like a butterfly and flit between all of them if you wanted. So all of those ways you give them permission to engage with those conversations. And... At the beginning of the first day, one young woman stood up very nervously and said she wanted to talk about how we, how can we as Christians accept and then welcome the LGBTIQ plus community into our churches. She did that as an LGBTIQ plus person, a rainbow person. Well, they had that conversation and she was amazed at the number of people who came along to that conversation and she was even more amazed by the number of people who said to her afterwards, look, I'm really sorry I didn't come. Uh, There were too many other conversations that I wanted to be part of, but if you have that conversation again, I will make a very big effort to get there, including myself. I was one of those that said that. And so the second day she stood up and said, I would like to have a conversation about this topic Uh, We had it yesterday, but a number of people came to me, so I I thought I'd try to have it again. And again, a significant number of people turned up, including, uh, I think over the cross of the two days, most of the leadership of the Third Order. Uh, And for most of the conversation, it was really people's experience of being a rainbow person in the church. And you can imagine how those 
how those stories went. At least with their stories, there was some redemption. They were still part of the order. In the order, they found a safe place. For some, it was the only place they found safe. The wider church was not a safe place for them. Their stories in the wider church was like John the Baptist, without redemption. And their stories reminded me of my own experience of accompanying a young man, we'll call him Nigel, for a number of years. Nigel went to a pretty conservative church and he was pretty clear that homosexuality was sinful, was against God's plan, and if you were gay, you would go to hell. The trouble was, he was gay. And he didn't want to be gay, he didn't choose to be gay, he tried to repent of being gay because his church continually told him he had to repent, so he tried but nothing changed, and he prayed every day that God would stop him being gay and that he would be straight like he was supposed to be, like it was in God's plan. And he struggled with this for years, not telling anyone that he was gay, trying to pretend that he wasn't gay. In the end, he became increasingly depressed and finally so depressed he was suicidal and non-functioning. He had to drop out of his university course, he had to stop working, he was just a suicidal zombie, he really, really, and I was on his suicide watch list. So over time, he, he then went to counselling and uh, the university paid for that. They were quite keen for him to finish his course. Uh, and with the help of his counsellor, he began to realise that one of his really big problems was his image of God. His image of God was a God who created him gay and then said, well, you're probably going to hell. And if you ever look at another man, well, you're definitely going to hell. He felt like he was already living in hell. He felt like he'd been leave, believing in a God who was, well, as he said, a sadistic, hateful, life-denying God who had created him gay and then was condemning him to eternity in hell. And they left him with three choices. The first was to continue to believe in this God, which given what that was doing to his mental health, didn't seem a particularly wise idea. The second was to give up on God altogether. And that is what many rainbow people have chosen. There is no life in our God. Just a hateful, sadistic, life-denying entity. Why would you believe in that? And of God, we're not. And so they've left left God, left the church. Their families and their friends have left with them. I've been interested that we've been mourning the loss of the five parishes down at Christchurch. I wish we were as vocal in our mourning of the number of Garambo people who have left our church because of the very theology those five churches preach. But we remain silent about that. The third option was to see if the Bible offered him any other ways of understanding God and who he was in God. And so with his counsellor and with me, we explored the scriptures. We went to places like Genesis, where it says that God created all people in God's image, not all straight people, just all people. And in that passage, you can see that as a gay man, he was created in the image of God. 
We went to places like Psalms where it says that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. That before he was knit in his mother's womb, he was known and loved by God as a gay man. Wow. Think of the change that made for him. That he could actually believe in a God who created him and loved him as a gay man. He still had a lot of work to do. He still had to work out how to honour that he is made in the image of God as a gay man. But there was freedom and life in that. There was permission in that. He was affirmed as a gay man. His story was very similar to those that I heard and listened to in Brisbane. And it was deeply moving to be able to listen to their stories. To be honest, I felt a lot of relief that this year our General Synod has at last made the decision to allow the blessing of same-gender marriages and civil unions. Because that means our officially our church has said to people like me, you can believe that God creates all people in the image of God, not just straight people. That all people are fearfully and wonderfully made and known and loved by God before they are knit in their mother's wombs. Before that, you could hold that belief, but it didn't quite fit with what the church taught. My experience of Nigel and of the Rainbow People in Australia could have been as bad as the story about John's beheading. For many, it has been that bad. It has felt like they were beheaded and they were left. But for Nigel and for those stories I heard in Australia, it was a hard story, but it was a story with hope. The story of Herod's depraved banquet is a hard story. And if we leave it on its own, there is no hope in it. But it should never be read on its own. It doesn't stand alone in Mark's Gospel. It's part of a bigger story. Mark doesn't write a series of discrete little stories that we can read one after the other without any relation to the other. He wrote a story. One story. And so this depraved banquet is set in the middle of Jesus sending out his disciples. And it finishes with his disciples regathering and telling of all the wonderful things that happened. And then a crowd gathers around them. And at the end of the day, disciples come to Jesus and say, look, you've got to send the crowd away. There's no food here. And Jesus says, with deep compassion, well, we'll feed them. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Now we could get hung up on how Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus, And I've probably even preached sermons about that myself. But then when we do that, we miss the important theological point that Mark is making. These two meals sit side by side. The story of Herod's depraved banquet. The story of Jesus' amazing meal out in the countryside. One of them is filled with drunk, lecherous men filled with power, filled with fear and, and greed. And the other one is where 
and, and that first one where depraved things happen, and the second one is with all kinds of people, with no barriers about who could come. And to that meal, Jesus offers ridiculous generosity and hospitality. Herod's meal was a sickening banquet of death and exclusion, and Jesus' meal was a meal of life and welcome and inclusion. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 plus and of the feeding of the 4,000 plus, these stories lie at the heart of the Eucharist. When we gather around this table, we remember those stories of Jesus' deep compassion, of his ridiculous welcome and hospitality. We are reminded that we are a people who exist in that meal, who are fed by that meal. We are invited to show the same deep compassion. We are offered, we are invited to offer the same ridiculous generosity and hospitality. That same deep compassion and hospitality that Nigel eventually found. At the end of the conference, the young woman, there's a, a time for people to come up, come up with action, actions, but the, woman was, uh, the young woman was too nervous. She eventually came to me and said, look, I really wanted uh, to find a way that TSSF Asia Pacific could officially be more welcoming of rainbow people. And I said, well, you need to talk to the Minister Provincial about that, Godfrey. So she went and talked about that and a recommendation was come, then came to chapter. We talked about what kind of wording we could have on our website at least to say that we welcome all people. So this is the third part of our of that statement. The first two parts are day seven and eight out of our principles. When uh, her mother was on chapter, she's a third generation Franciscan. Um, when she, uh, her, so her mother was kind of talking to her about the wording and what we might do. And when we agreed to this and it was put up on the website, her mother texted her daughter who then replied back. She said, uh, when she stood up at the conference and said this is what she wanted to talk about, she felt naked, exposing herself and who she was. And Brisbane's not, in the Anglican Church, it's not as conservative as Sydney, but it's certainly not renowned for its liberalness. So she was a little nervous about what might happen. One of the great stories about St Francis is when his father had had enough, he dragged him before the bishop and told the bishop to tell Francis to stop rebuilding churches with his money and to behave himself. And Francis' response to that was to take off all his clothes and return those clothes to his father. And the bishop Guido then put his cloak around Francis, offering the church's protection. This young woman said that the reaction she got from the people at the conference, but particularly from chapter, as we put this up on the website, was she had felt naked before the people and wears an order had put our cloak around her and protected her. It was a profound moment for her. It was at that moment we had stood in that ridiculous hospitality, that deep compassion that Jesus shows at the second meal. So as we think about all of these stories, I wonder how we here at St George's were invited in our way to not be bound by the ways that shaped Herod's banquet. How we might instead offer to continue 
to offer, how we might continue to offer alternatives to the ways of exclusion and death, how we might offer ways of hospitality and compassion, of generosity. As we gather around the Eucharistic table, how might we join God's work of ridiculous generosity, of amazing hospitality, of deep compassion and welcome?